0: You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. If your team is ready to improve patient outcomes, check out the website, www.daytonicuconsulting.com, for information about webinars and consulting services. episode is dedicated to communication in the ICU. This is taking me a long time to publish in part because it is so emotional for me. This hits home. Really, this topic should be penetrating for all of us. We should all agree that communication is a basic human right. It was recognized as a basic human right internationally over 70 years ago, the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights specified in Article 19 that all people must have the right to be able to communicate. Yet, now in 2022 in the ICU, we're not always so clear or focused on this foundational right of humanity. Yet, this inherent right applies to all people, regardless of communication disabilities or language barriers. This freedom requires access to communication. My daughter has a mitochondrial disease that impairs her muscle control and therefore has significant delays in her speech. Cognitively, she is probably around her age of three years old, though nonverbal, her right to communicate is sacred. She uses an eye gaze device, which has given me an incredible appreciation for the technology that facilitates nonverbal communication. When patients are voiceless while on mechanical ventilation, their right to communicate should be preserved. Immersing myself in the post ICU world to get glimpses into the struggles of being sedated and immobilized gave me a deep love for the utilization of communication in the awake and walking ICU. Most patients are strong and intact enough to write with a pen and paper or text because they are usually allowed to do so shortly after intubation. I now have a better understanding of the importance of the questions they write, like, where is my daughter? Can I text my husband? As a wife and mother, even being away from my children without updates in normal circumstances can cause me anxiety. I would have so many things to ask and tell my husband as we never go a day without talking or connecting. I can't imagine the agitation I would develop if I was desperate to ask if they were okay. If I had delirium and believed grave harm was happening to them and no one gave me a way to communicate, let alone answer the questions that weighed on my mind. I would probably start to pull up my restraints and try to sit up and use my hands to get my message across. I think we all get frustrated and even demoralized or offended when we are not allowed to talk or people talk over us or about us instead of to us. This is the constant experience of many ICU patients, yet their questions and comments are often pertaining to life or death or desperate need to find a clarification while battling delirium. And yet we forget that they can and should be heard and understood even with a breathing tube in place. The ICU rehab organization through Johns Hopkins has a really great page about how to improve comfort with the endotracheal tube and a list of ideas. Number three on that list is to give a patient a way to express themselves, not sedation, but a pen, paper or device. I've included a link to that page on the blog. So what if we ran for a communication tool? before running for sedation. Would that make a difference in agitation, restraint and sedation use? How would it impact delirium and then overall patient outcomes if we expected, wanted and allowed patients to communicate with us while intubated? What is it like for patients when they are battling delirium or are keenly aware of the reality and are desperate to be understood and yet left not only powerless, but voiceless as well. I invited survivors to share with us the role
1: communication played in their journeys through critical illness. My name is Chris Ross, and I am a survivor of very severe COVID. I am also a speech-language pathologist with just over 30 years experience. As a speech-language pathologist, my practice focused on children and adults who were what would be considered functionally nonverbal, meaning they could communicate some with spoken language, but generally to really communicate in a meaningful way, they needed some sort of other system. For some people it was sign language, for some people it was computers, Picture boards, whatever allowed them to express themselves in a way that was meaningful to them and the people who were communicating with them. In November 2020, I was diagnosed with COVID and became very, very ill over about a two week period. I had been in the hospital for about 10 days when I really crashed and required mechanical ventilation. So the last thing I really remember was somebody saying to me, you need to go on a ventilator. We're going to call your family so you can talk to them. And we did that. The next thing I remember was 12 days later and somebody was waking me up saying, you got a lot worse. You've been on a machine called ECMO. It's kept your heart and your lungs working while you've been ill and you're doing better now. At that point, I was still intubated and the doctor said to me, you still require a ventilator. So we're going to do a tracheostomy and you're going to get a feeding tube. So this was after 12 days of very, very heavy sedation. I remember hearing that information and then um, hearing things like, okay, we're going to put your feeding tube in now. Okay. We're going to, you know, do something with the ventilator. And I remember very severe coughing fits, but from the day they woke me up until the day I was transferred to an LTAC, it was five days. And really in my memory, it was it could have been less than a day because I was still sedated and coming out of that sedation. Also, during that time, I experienced very severe delirium and still have very vivid memories of things that didn't happen. What is most remarkable to me during this time as both a patient and a speech-language pathologist was that I had no access to any type of communication system. I remember trying to use some sign language because I do know some sign language and a nurse saying, I don't understand you trace in my hand what you're trying to say. And I was trying to tell her that I wanted to go home. And I was trying to understand why I couldn't go home, I think at the time too. So there were those five days while I was still in the ICU where really my only form of communication was tracing into the nurse's hand. Last day I was there, I was, they were preparing me to transfer to a long-term acute care hospital. I had made myself more than clear, I thought, prior to going on the ventilator, that if that going to that LTAC was an option, I was in no way in favor of it. I didn't want to go there. I knew the reputation from working in healthcare myself and that my family had to do whatever they could to keep me out of there because I didn't want to go. Well, day five after waking up, I hear that's exactly where I'm going and I have no way to communicate my frustrations with anybody at that point. Somehow, and I'm not sure exactly how, I got across to the nurses at the hospital that night that I wanted to call my family and in my foggy memory of that, I think I became very upset and was crying. And they were asking me a series of questions to try to guess why I was upset. And then you know, they said, do you want to talk to your family? And I said, yes. So, you know, of course, this was when the hospitals were still quarantining and you weren't allowed into to you weren't allowed to have visitors and visitors were not allowed in the hospital. So we got on on FaceTime. And my daughter understands enough sign language that she could figure out that I did not wanna go to this hospital. I was upset about that. I wanted to go anywhere but there. Well, you know, having the frustration and the fears about going there and not having a way to communicate while you're already deep into delirium was probably just The perfect storm for the delirium to come worse, for PTSD, when I think about the memories I have of that time, it was probably the scariest time in my life. Well, somehow it was 2.30 in the morning when I was transferred to the hospital I didn't want to go to, to the LTAC. And that was not a figment of delirium. It truly was 2.30 in the morning when I was transferred. It was Christmas Eve and i was still very delirious the memories i have of that time are mixed with memories of delirium and i'm still not even sure exactly what was true and what wasn't i get to this hospital continue to experience delirium continue to be scared no way to communicate but I remember thinking, well, for sure there's a speech pathologist here. I know there's a speech pathologist here who works here. Where is a communication board? Why don't I have a communication board in my room? So at least I could point to pictures. Well, that never happened. It never came. Um, a few days later, a respiratory therapist came into the room and got my family on FaceTime for me and he tore off the bottom of a Kleenex box and gave me a pen and that was to be my communication system. Now I was so weak I could hardly write, I could hardly hold a pen at that point. I do remember having trouble figuring out how to hold a pen but it was something and I ran out of room pretty quickly on that, commun- or on that uh, Kleenex box Um, trying to practice what I wanted to write and then finally getting the words out in writing. I still was not provided with anything other than that Kleenex box and that pen for communication until my family sent in notebooks and dry erase boards and anything else they could think of to let me communicate or to help me communicate with them. So I was able to start writing again after practicing Every time I would wake up, I would try to practice writing a little bit. I'd write down questions or things that I wanted to say to my family, just to have a way to communicate. Finally, about two weeks later from writing on, after writing on dry erase boards and notebooks and communicating with my healthcare team this way, I got a Passy mirror valve, a speaking valve. And I was so thrilled to see that. Again, as a speech pathologist, I knew what it was and I could not wait to get that on and start using it right away. From there, I got my voice back. I love when I look at my Facebook memories of that day. I felt like that was the most liberating day that I finally had a way to communicate. But I feel what happened to me is very common. And it's, it's very concerning that there are so many people in ICUs on ventilators who have no access to communication because communication really is a fundamental right, you know, and to care for your patients, you have to have some sort of, of ability for them to communicate whatever way that is if they're they're unable to uh, communicate verbally.
2: Not being able to communicate effectively can be extremely distressing. My initial communication method while awake on the vent was blinking once for yes and twice for no. Of course, this is only suitable for responding to questions. And at this stage, my mind was still in torment because the nightmares I experienced during my coma carried forward after I was brought around from weeks of sedation. In that world, my two young daughters had been kidnapped, which was more real to me than the world I was now awake in, and I had no ability to tell anyone or ask for help. It would be two days before my daughters visited me and released me from that scenario. As the effects of the paralytics wore off, I was able to move my jaw more freely, and lip-reading came next. Words like yes and no were straightforward, but stringing together more than a few words could be problematic. As some strength returned to my arms, the next stage was pointing at single letters on an alphabet board to spell words, but that would quickly become tiring. I could only communicate this way for a matter of minutes as my arm would soon weaken and I would struggle to point out the correct letter, with my finger hovering at the one below or to the side and the person reading would say they couldn't understand, which would often result in me giving up, because I would be too tired or weak to repeat a phrase if misunderstood. Next, I was presented with a pen and notepad. I drew circles and lines as I was too weak to form words and had lost all dexterity. Following repeated attempts, my first written question was to my former partner and the mother of our baby son. I asked her, where am I? One recurring nightmare I experienced included nurses who were involved in the kidnapping of my daughters. So could I trust these people I was seeing in nurses' uniforms and who were giving me so much attention? My second written comment was, I'm frightened because I was experiencing a distorted reality driven by auditory and visual hallucinations and many of the doctors and nurses had already entered into my delusions in a negative way, so I was very wary of their presence. My early writing was mostly unintelligible and littered with spelling mistakes, so I I would have to clarify the message by mouthing the words. All of my written communications were saved and incorporated in my ICU diary, so I am able to look back at them. The final increment in my communication progression was having a Passy Muir valve attached to my track. This allowed my voice to be heard and was by far the clearest method, but I could only tolerate it for short periods. My ICU event was 12 years ago and I hope that improved methods of communication are more widely available to patients now. I have seen demonstrations of communication apps for tablet computers in the UK and the US where tapping an icon can represent an entire common sentence, such as My mouth is dry. I am uncomfortable. What is the date? I have no doubt that having access to this method of communication would have improved my ICU experience greatly by reducing my anxiety and frustration and in turn elevating my psychological state. This would also have benefited interaction with my visiting family and clinical staff. My only concern with this easier method of communication is that many patients, like myself, will be in the grip of delirium and it may grow tiresome for nursing staff having to repeatedly respond to delusional comments and family may be worried by what their loved one is telling them.
3: After I was intubated and put into a medically induced coma, there was a time where they were changing the levels of sedation I was under. And so I became more aware and attempted several times to communicate by writing on the bed with my fingers to my mother. My mom told me I was very agitated and clearly kept trying to talk to her, but the nurses and doctors all told her to leave me alone and to not allow me access to pen and paper in fear that I would ask them to discontinue my care. I vividly remember trying to scream and cry because I was so frustrated at not being able to communicate what I was feeling I remember my mom sobbing next to me because of it Eventually my mom gave in and let me leave a pen and paper and I somehow wrote her a note And in that note it was just me expressing the fear that I had and the pain that I was in And that was really important for me to be able to express that. I think it's so important, not only as a patient, to have access to communicate in some way, but also for your family. It's such a scary time for everyone involved, and I think it's helpful to bridge that gap, so you both don't feel so alone in what you're experiencing together.
4: It was around June 17th, 2015 when I first woke up from being intubated. This all started when the doctor said I had an allergic reaction to an anesthesia administered for a partial knee replacement. I could not move any part of my body or talk to the medical team or my wife. I had all kinds of tubes attached to me and I moved my lips toward my wife and I tried to say, let me die. My legs and feet were the size of five gallon buckets due to blood clots in my legs. I remember them swabbing my lips with water and they somehow got the message that I wanted a little watermelon juice in the water. That night, a nurse brought in watermelon and rubbed a piece on my lips. I tell you this may sound small, but to me, it was everything. I wasn't able to use a call button as I couldn't move my hands. When I wanted something, I would take my wedding band and peck against the metal bed. After a couple days, I was able to raise my hand. One night, I needed something, and I could see a nurse out the window, so I raised my hand. The nurse thought I was just waving at her and she waved back and went on about her business. This was so frustrating as I couldn't speak at all and could barely move my arms. This was my life for a couple of weeks until I got more mobile and started using the Passamere valve.
5: So I was in a medically induced coma for 25 days. When I came out of that coma, I suffered some traumatic delirium, which puts you in a kind of strange place psychologically. On top of that, I was on so many paralytics and drugs for so long without those sedation vacations that... I was completely paralyzed and I had been traked and I was ventilator dependent. So I had no way to communicate to the nurses, to my partner, to anybody. Because as many people say, hey, I can read lips. Well, I only met two people in that entire four month period that could actually read lips. So it kind of affected my ability to communicate because I couldn't write on a whiteboard or a piece of paper like a couple of the nurses had asked me to do. I couldn't point at a communication board. So we eventually, my partner and I came up with a really (laughs) low-tech assistive technology way where we bought a laser pointer online and she glued it to my favorite baseball hat but I was able to actually point with the laser at these letter boards and they were they had words on there like eyeglasses or reposition or things like that but if it wasn't for that I wouldn't have had any other way to communicate this really impacted me in a sense that I mean it's already tough enough when you're dealing with that sort of physical deficit I would say and then you can't communicate with people it just psychologically just damages you. So as a result I was very agitated and depressed and things like that this whole time and actually suffered pics and had to go through PTSD treatment and stuff like that. The one thing I wish that I had a chance to to use while I was in the hospital was I wish I had a chance to use some of these communication tools that you know they're now they're coming out with like the Vitatalk that when I first saw this, it brought tears to my eyes. So I think this would have changed a lot of my recovery outcome and actually shortened it quite a bit. So anybody that has the power to do something about this, please find a way to give your intubated patients a voice and a sense of communication so that they can do better and move quicker to getting back to some semblance of their normal lives back
6: in 2018 I was hospitalized I was in the ICU for 35 days I had been sedated and was on a ventilator for close to three weeks I was on a ventilator because my colon had ruptured and I was in septic shock unfortunately I was not given the choice of whether or not I could be sedated no one in my family knew enough to say I don't want my daughter on sedation. I want her to be walking around while she is attached to a ventilator. That is an option that you and your family members have now, but you need to know about it. The other thing that's upsetting to me now is the fact because I was sedated, I had no means of communicating with my family members, loved ones, doctors, nurses for that almost three week period of time. I have since come to learn that there are devices that are specifically made for this. And it's a tremendous help to the patient, to loved ones, to all medical staff who is there to help the patient. And I'm here to urge you to ask for this type of thing if you or a family member should be in need. Some type of device a recording device, it could be a telephone, it could be a whiteboard, even a pad and paper, at the very least, would be so helpful because you would be able to express what you need if you are scared, you could say you're scared. If you need something, anything, you could ask for it. They would be able to keep in touch with you, letting you know how you're doing. If I had had such a device, I know I would not have been um, as worried about my mom, who was then 89 years old. I wouldn't have been worried about my family, my brothers, and my two nephews. Family is everything to me. And I now know that I could have had something like this, and I should have had something like this. So I want you to know all about it so that you can ask for it. Do not, do not be sedated. It will make your recovery much tougher.
7: And when first on vent and awake, I tried to use ASL. The staff thought I was trying to pull my tube out until one of the cleaning crew told them what I was doing. They also tied my hands down, eventually. My husband brought in a pad and vent, being unable to communicate, made me more agitated, especially when they were giving me meds. I have had re- bad responses to. I believe they did keep me sedated induced coma for as much as five days on at least five occasions, only awakening me when they tried to wean me. Six years later, I'm treatment dependent 24 seven. Whenever I need nasalization, I'm always in the ICU. I know many of the staff, My life is reasonably normal except for the gear. I participate fully in my community. I drive, volunteer, and go shopping. Thank you.
3: When I was intubated, one of the hardest things was communication because being restrained, I wasn't able to have easy access to my phone, to text, or to handle writing on the clipboard. I also found writing was difficult because the IVs that were in my wrist. I wish that when the staff loosened my restraints that they were able to realize that they could, that I wasn't trying to pull my tube out, that I was just trying to find some way to communicate. If
0: we truly see our patients as human and respect their basic rights, then we will facilitate communication. If we do not have tools available for nonverbal communication, then we are not providing humane care. As a clinician, a patient's ability to tell me their medical history, medication record, wishes for their care, goals for their future, pain level and location, how they're sleeping, anxiety levels, any signs of delirium and so on, are key to my assessment and decision-making. We can do much more effective and thorough assessments and care when we avoid sedation and allow for communication with our patients. If you have ever lived or visited a country or environment in which no one around you spoke your language, then you may have a tiny glimpse into the frustration our patients feel when they try to use their restrained hands or look at us with panic and move their lips in seemingly senseless ways in desperate attempt to give us the message that they are panicked about. I lived in El Salvador for eight months. No one around me spoke English, and initially, my Spanish was laughable. Upon my arrival, I suddenly needed to go to an orthodontist. I traveled to a nice clinic in the capital, but my inability to tell them what I wanted or needed caused me angst. I laid there feeling so vulnerable as they messed with my mouth, and I had questions about what they were doing or planning to do that I couldn't ask. In the end, when I looked in the mirror, I realized the procedure they had performed was not what I was really there for, but I couldn't communicate it. I also felt like they treated me like I was incompetent or unintelligent because I couldn't communicate with them. I can only imagine what it is like as a patient in an ICU knowing my life is on the line and having so much to ask and say, but being unable to do so. And instead being ignored, restrained and sedated when I attempted to communicate. Could there be a more dehumanizing approach to caring for patients? So what does it mean to a patient when they cannot speak, but are allowed to write, text, point to a board or use a device? Those survivors were eager to share their insights as well. My name is Susan East. The first time
8: I had ARDS was very scary and frightening. I had never been sick. So to be that sick on a ventilator and not know what was going on, it scared me. The doctors and nurses would come in and speak with my family or they would all step in the hall and talk but nobody spoke to me about what was going on with me. It made it worse for me and caused me a lot of anxiety. The third time I had ARDS, I was in need of a lung biopsy, and I was on a vent. My family and the doctor were in my room, and the doctor was telling them that it was necessary to do a lung biopsy and to maybe see what was going on with my lungs. My family had told the doctor no, that it was very risky, and the doctor had told them it was very risky. They didn't feel like at that time they were willing to take that chance because I was so sick. I motioned for the doctor. I had a notepad, I had a pen on my um, table, and I motioned for the doctor to get her attention, and when she looked at me, I wrote down Can I sign? And she asked me, are you asking me if you can sign for this procedure? And I shook my head, yes. My family was very upset, but I felt like, for me, I needed to do this. If the doctor thought it was necessary, I wanted to go ahead and have it done. It made me feel even better, though, to be able to be in control of what was going on with my body my condition. To be able to text, to be able to write and communicate, and to have people communicate with you, can make all the difference in the world in your recovery.
9: September 18th, 2018 was the day that I will remember for the rest of my life. That was the day I was admitted into uh, the hospital, immediately given oxygen because I couldn't catch a breath, very lightheaded. My oxygen at that time was at 73. Fast forward three days later, I was life flighted to Salt Lake City, intubated, tubes in in my nose, maybe pick line, but I was awake. Woke up to a whole bunch of doctors. I was handcuffed to the bed. Well, the handcuffs were there just to keep me from pulling everything out of my my mouth and the tubes out. Went through a short, probably 24 hours maybe, of ICU delirium. Thinking back now, after talking to other survivors that have went through this that were sedated, they have told me that they suffer long-term mental from being going through the ICU delirium through being sedated for so long. I am so thankful that I only had to endure that for a short 24 hours, as horrible as that was. During my 17 day stay in the, in the ICU, it was the most painful traumatic event that I had ever been through. And I've given birth to three children. I would definitely rather do childbirth than to go through that. In that time I had blown blood vessels in my eyes. I was, however, they gave me a pencil and a piece of paper. And I was able to communicate with my family. I was able to communicate with my doctor. At one point in time, I remember asking my doctor if I was going to die. I remember my doctor turning to me and saying, only time will tell. And that is up to you if you die. Have I not been awake and asking that question? And and just, it was, it was so freeing to be able to communicate and to even help my daughter with her homework and and to communicate with them that way. And my daughter w- had prom that same that same time and I was able to communicate with her over phone, of course, but do chats with her and, you know, I got to write on the piece of paper, you look so beautiful, I wish I was there. Taking a shower was probably the first time I was able to take a shower being intubated and standing there with the tubes in my throat down my throat but being able to bathe myself before then I hadn't been able to bathe myself I had to have somebody do it for me but being able to stand up and shower by myself was in privacy and it was just the best feeling it was amazing being able to walk the laps laps around the 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 facility and with the being intubated it was hard I will I will nothing about this was easy however being able to walk around and get to strength I had talked to survivors that had been that had been intubated and sedated and they had to go through physical therapy for many many a long time me personally I was in there for 17 days and was able to walk talk and walk out of the hospital. I didn't have to do physical therapy. I went home on oxygen, but only for a short amount of time. Yeah, I, as much as pain as I had to go through and how horrible it was for my family to watch, if I ever, in fact, I moved to Tennessee, and I told my husband, I says, if I ever start going downhill and I get ARDS again, Don't you dare let them put me to sleep. Don't you let them put me down. I want to be put over in Salt Lake. I want to be awake again because I've heard the stories of people that that haven't been. And I, I would do it all over again. Because being able to communicate, being awake, being able to spend those last times, if I was gonna have a last time with my family awake, is far more better than being asleep
0: and them talking and me not being able to communicate. So what value does communication hold for ICU clinicians? Is it just another laborious task? Do we even have time for it?
10: Or has it helped improve workload and job fulfillment? As a speech-language pathologist in the ICUs, I work with our critical care teams to initiate sedation vacations for our patients who are intubated or trached I frequently attend ICU rounds and identify patients who are unable to communicate and may be kept sedated to prevent agitation or any frustration. And it sometimes takes a bit of advocacy and coordination, but once patients have access to communication and the ability to ask questions or participate in their own care, they no longer need to be kept sedated. A few years ago, I worked with a teenager who was 14 at the time, and he had a cardiac arrest. And he was in our pediatric ICU intubated and sedated. And the team kept saying that every time they would take him off of the sedation, he would get really agitated and try to pull out all of his tubes. So they would resedate him. And I asked them if I could have a few minutes with him off of the sedation and help him communicate. And they were able to take him off and he immediately was able to communicate using an alphabet board. And the first thing that he expressed was he asked, am I going to die? And so we uh, immediately brought in his family and the psychologist and the attending physician and had a discussion with him about everything that he went through and that he's okay now and that he's getting better. And when they went to put back the sedation, they didn't fully sedate him. They only gave him a milder form of it. And that was really the start of the weaning process of sedation for him once he was able to communicate.
11: My intubated patients are awake. I have such an easy time understanding what they need. Whether it's needing to use the bathroom, wanting to be suctioned, feeling anxious, whatever it may be. So it's always so much easier to communicate when they have less or no sedation. When I first started kind of taking a deep dive into this podcast and listening and kind of practicing, you know, my day-to-day patient care, I started noticing that my delirious and confused patients had such a difficult time understanding what was going on. That's when I began realizing that patients I was waking up after coworkers had, quote, snowed, just needed like constant reassurance and reorientation. Once they were awake and everything was a little bit more lucid, the confusion about why they were you know, not able to drink water or why they even had a breathing tube in place became significantly clearer. So I often tell patients when I first wake them up, not to get too stressed about having a hard time communicating at first, kind of go over like, I honestly will sit there and reiterate time and time again, hey, you know, my name is Austin. I'm your nurse, you're in the hospital. You have a breathing tube in place. You, your hands are restrained so that you don't take your breathing tube out. You know, it's such and such day. It's this time your family's here with you. You know, this is what's going on. And so once I've kind of given them an update on everything and continue reiterating that they, you know, as time, as the shift goes on, rather, everything gets a little bit more, you know, clear. So I love having family involved. Super, super helpful for the most part if you can educate the family on how to orient the patient, how to continue orienting the patient and how to properly keep the patient calm. I know a lot of times some of my coworkers will get um, frustrated with having family in the room and I'm I always trying to help like educate my coworkers on like, it's not necessarily, you know, they're in the way. If you put them to work and give them a task or a job, it's so much easier. You'll have to answer some questions here and there on, why you know the patient's doing this or you know why the you know the monitor is beeping you know but once they're involved and they have a job you know it can be super helpful on you know making sure you know delirium you know is clearing or the confusion is clearing and you know you can continue to wake them up i really liked one of the more recent podcasts with the neuro icu the a to f bundle in the neuro ICU. And in regards to like patient assessments, I've not had any significant neuro changes on patients, but recently I was able to assess whether or not my patient was having, you know, they had like some slight ST elevation and I was able to like correlate, Hey, are you having chest pain or do you feel differently? Is, you know, is anything different? And they were able to answer yes or no questions. It's not necessarily a guessing game of oh, there's some, you know, ST elevation there. Maybe they're having a STEMI or, you know, you can easily correlate, you know, current chest pain or, hey, do you feel different? You know, do you, is there some increasing shortness of breath so on and so forth. So I've actually kind of gone back to family. I've started kind of citing, you know, this particular podcast in my in my family and patient education. So I'll walk in, hey, you know, I'll be your nurse today. What I'm going to do is we're going to work on decreasing some of this sedation that we've had, you know, going and, and waking your loved one up. So I'll tell people, you know, that I'm going to decrease sedation and and that will hopefully help, you know, decrease confusion. I'll, I'll kind of explain what delirium is and families are instantly on board. So it when I tell them like, hey, this could potentially, you know, shorten your loved one's stay in the hospital you know, this is going to be your job moving forward, keeping your 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 loved one, you know, up to date, oriented. It's really, you know, I've really noticed significant improvement, and so lots of education, lots of you know, bettering my assessment, keeping keeping my patients awake. I've really, really, really loved this podcast, and I'll I'll continue listening and keep it going. Thank you.
12: Hi, my name is Heidi Engel. I'm a physical therapist in a large academic medical ICU. And this is the story I want to tell about a patient we will call Becky. Becky's story is not unusual for what I see happen in our ICU and how valuable it is for patients to be awake and mobile and able to communicate. So my day tends to start with walking through the ICU, doing my own individual rounds. And what that means is I look in on the patient, I greet the family if they are there and I'm meeting them or just saying hello. And the other thing I do is I look at the ventilator I've already read the medical chart to see what's happened to the patient over the course of the past few days. I know their history, and I just like to see what's on the monitor, what's running on the IV pole, what's happening on the ventilator. And on one particular morning, I looked in on Becky, and she had been intubated now for two days for an acute respiratory distress syndrome and a pneumonia in a baseline cancer diagnosis. And the ventilator was set on a pressure pressure support settings, not very high settings at all. However, I noticed that Becky, who I knew before she needed to be intubated and who I also knew was Mobile and valued being able to get up and walk around and had very good strength still. What I noticed was there was 20 micrograms of propofol running, dexmedetamidine running, and on continuous drips, and her sedation level was something at a RAS minus three. So I was curious as to why she was sedated at 10 o'clock in the morning and what had happened and what was our plan for the day? When would we be waking her up and getting her moving? And there was not, the nurse was on break, but our wonderful respiratory therapist was sitting at a computer nearby. And so I went over to him and I asked him what's happening with Becky today. And he said, well, earlier in the morning when you weren't here, They did a spontaneous awakening trial and the nurse went into the room, turned off the sedation and left the room again. So Becky was lying alone in the bed, waking up really for the first time since she had been intubated two days earlier and she started flailing and she was strong enough that The respiratory therapist happened by just at the moment to see her reaching for her ET tube, about to pull it out. So he went in and he managed to secure the ET tubing and tell the nurse what had happened. And as a result, they actually turned the propofol back on. So I asked the respiratory therapist, if he was still going to be available in an hour. Yes, he was. And then I asked the physician and I asked the nurse if we could try again. It's not unusual for me to receive somewhat quizzical looks when I make this request. But I followed it up with saying, I'll be there. I'll keep her family member there. The respiratory therapist has agreed to just watch all the vent and the ET tubing the entire time. She really should be able to breathe comfortably once we get her up. And I really believe if we explain to her what is going on, she won't try to reach for the tube. So we did this. We turned off the sedation. And it's fairly common for... Requests to turn off the sedation to be met with, well, I'll turn it down, but I'm really not comfortable turning it all the way off. There are a lot of of rationales I hear for weaning all the sedating medications, weaning the presidex, weaning the propofol, weaning, reducing the dosage, not wanting to turn it off. And sometimes I have to start with that point. But it's very difficult to communicate with the patient, even when you have to have the dosage of their sedating medication. It's everything, everything is so much easier with communication, with movement, if the sedation is just off, and that includes precedex. Anyway, we we gradually were able to, with the sedation off, wake Becky up. And we did what we always do. We explained to her very calmly what was happening. And we explained it to her again and again. And we asked her to please very much not touch the tube. And we had her family member right there next to her doing the same thing. She loves Christian music. And her family member began to sing to her. It was lovely. And that, and that brought her around and, and woke her up. And finally, once we had her sitting up and then eventually standing up and then moving over to a chair and then comfortably placed in the chair and realized nothing medically had changed between initial sedation, wake up. Number one, early in the morning where no one was in the room, the sedation just turned off and the patient left lying there with restraints and her hands tied to the bed rails. Medically, not a single thing happened between that moment and a few hours later when I came back and instead we woke her up, we had the music playing, we had the family present, we had a lot of calm explanation for the patient of what was happening. We... Washed her face. We combed her hair. We gave her a back rub. We gradually helped her stand up. We got her settled into a chair. We put. She had her own personal blanket in the room. We put the blanket over her in the chair. We had her loved ones sitting right in front of her the whole time. We had the respiratory therapist available to 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 suction the secretions out of her, and we gave her paper and pen. And she was able to write and she would tell us what she needed. And she would indicate that, you know, she felt like she was getting enough air. And then we would explain to her how the ventilator acts as exactly the opposite of normal breathing and how distressful that can be. But she was still needing the ventilator right now. And we had to help her find ways to adapt to it We had her friends talking to her later on, on an iPad and a few days later when she was extubated and in a regular hospital room, I, I went to say hello to her and I asked Becky what it meant to her to be able to be awake and communicating openly with her family and openly with us. While she was still in the ICU and on the ventilator. And she said it was the most reassuring thing. It was the one thing that gave her hope. And it meant everything to her to be able to have her friend communicating with her. And for her to be able to express her needs and her fears to us in return. So Becky is doing very well she's still needing treatment for her cancer and we have kept a journal for her so we also wrote down the entire experience of of what happened with her in the icu in her in her icu diary which has continued to be her journaling experience out on the floor as well so that's a good story and I, I wish many more similar stories for the future of our ICU and, and ICUs everywhere.
0: So let's be clear. Depriving patients of the opportunity to communicate is not usually malicious. It is cultural. One of my first shifts with an intensivist that was brand new to the awake and walking ICU provided a glimpse into the contrasting perspectives we have. LifeLight brought us an intubated patient. She had advanced muscular dystrophy and was in septic shock and acute respiratory failure from aspiration pneumonia. She arrived sedated, but the nurse habitually took off sedation. I had called her sister and was almost at the patient's doorway when this new intensivist was passing by and exclaimed, whoa, hey, 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 she's, she's awake, and turned to me and said in panic. They need to turn up her sedation. Distracted by the phone call, I quickly said something like, hey, no, she's okay. And hopefully I said, I'll explain more in a bit. I proceeded into the patient's room and had the sister on speakerphone. The sister was asking important questions about the location of her young daughter and if she was okay. The patient was able to mouth words, shake her head, give thumbs up, and eventually write a little bit. As was her baseline with muscular dystrophy. I felt eyes on me and I looked at the doorway to see the intensivist still standing there, but in shock with his jaw dropped. I realized that he was having a paradigm shift as he realized that the patient could communicate. He wasn't intending to violate her human right to have access to communication. He just didn't expect to be able to communicate with us because she had a breathing tube, which in his mind meant she would be automatically sedated. Hopefully in that moment, the patient seemed more human to him, and her right and ability to communicate was clearly demonstrated to him. The family wasn't able to be with her right away, and we learned from the patient that there was an ongoing custody battle between her, the daughter's unstable father, and the reservation council as the mother and daughter were Native American. Despite her advanced disease process and critical illness, This young mother stayed awake and participated in dangling while she was intubated. Because we allowed her the opportunity to communicate, we were able to facilitate the involvement of the reservation council and lawyers to expedite the resolution of custody matters. This ensured her daughter was safe, no matter what happened to the patient. That alone brought relief to her anxiety. She was able to make the decision to have a tracheostomy As her respiratory muscles were falling victim to her muscular dystrophy. Her family didn't have to make that decision and she told us what she wanted. Avoiding sedation and allowing for communication protected this mother and daughter, as well as preserved the mother's autonomy and independence. She had the right to decide on her care and her daughter's future, despite being on mechanical ventilation. We honored that right. This would have been a completely different scenario for both of them, Had she been sedated and are not able to communicate. In episode 20, there are stories about patients that were allowed to choose to discontinue life-preserving measures. They signed their pension paperwork, sent off final emails, decided who was present, and said their goodbyes, all because they were allowed to be autonomous through communication tools. One patient in the awake and walking ICU was a young widowed father. He was engaged to a wonderful woman that had already stepped in as a stepmother to his children. He was battling severe ARDS, and when he was informed that he needed to be proned, sedated, and paralyzed, he wrote to the staff that he wanted to be married first to make sure his fiancé had full custody of his children in case he didn't survive. The team scrambled, and within the next few hours, they had a marriage certificate, an officiate flowers, cake, and some humble decorations, and while he was on maximum ventilator settings, his wish was honored and he was sedated, knowing that his children would be okay. He did not survive more than a few days beyond that. This team's value of the patient's dignity and autonomy naturally led them to find ways for him to communicate and make his final wishes known. So now we all understand why communication isn't so important yet. Let's be real. It's not always so easy or simple. It's great when a patient wakes up right after intubation and has the cognition, strength, and dexterity to hold a pen and paper or text on their phones. This should be a huge plus in caring for appropriate patients that way. In those instances, a pen, clipboard, whiteboard, iPad, or cell phone with basic texting tools are sufficient Though even that can be tedious to the patient to have to write out every single word and letter, yet those tools work. You don't have to have fancy equipment. But what about the exceptions in which patients have to be sedated for a period of time and then become delirious, weak, or clumsy with their hands? Do we give up on them? Is their right to communicate on pause? So in formulating a plan for success to become awake and walking ICUs, we need to have an appreciation for communication, the expectation for it, and then the tools to facilitate it. I think communication is essential part of mobility. Before throwing a patient out of bed, we need to give them a chance to express their concerns, pain, discomfort, preferences in task or music before and during mobility. I've even had a patient write, quote, be careful of my tube, as they were anxious that the clinicians wouldn't be cautious with their ET tube. By allowing them to express that concern and then addressing it, they were able to mobilize with comfort and confidence. I was recently at a mobility conference, and as we were doing scenarios, I pretended to be the patient with ICU-acquired weakness and delirium. I realized how incomplete the scenario was without a communication tool like VitaTalk. As I really got into character, laying in that hospital bed, pretending to be really delirious, agitated, I imagined the vulnerability, angst, and questions I had as a patient, but then had no way to express them or have them addressed. Even in the pretend scenario, I realized that this made me as a patient less interested in doing whatever mobility task they wanted me to do because I wanted to be heard and understood first. We must have adaptive communication tools for our patients. My three-year-old daughter can talk with her eyes or the slight tap of her weak and clumsy fingers. So why can't our patients do the same while fighting for their lives surrounded by strangers? So again, reach out to me and let's chat about how to use this technology to support changes in sedation management within your team as well as how to address your unique and maybe not so unique barriers. Of course, the argument may come up with the same response of quote, we don't have the resources. So, okay, listen, there aren't studies I can throw out that prove that allowing patients to communicate will directly decrease hospital costs, but let's piece it together. Go back to episode 95 and review the financial sinkhole that sedation and immobility create. When communication technology like VitaTalk makes communication easier and quicker for clinicians and patients, then we do better assessments, catch complications sooner, provide better care and ultimately decrease and prevent sedation use, which leads to a plummet in delirium and agitation rates and helps us be more successful with early mobility. This all plays into the ultimate goal of getting them off the ventilator sooner having them walk out the doors and avoid a bucket list of expensive complications that they would be vulnerable to if we were to respond to their attempts to communicate with sedation. I feel confident that whatever something like VitaTalk costs, there will be a significant return on investment in so many ways, but especially financially. Help your financial stakeholders understand the financial value of the ABCDEF bundle and why supporting communication through proper staffing ratios and technology will ultimately benefit their bottom line. Of course, an episode on communication wouldn't be complete without the reminder to involve speech-language pathologists right away. If they're intubated, newly extubated, and especially newly trached, as you've heard from these survivors, some of the best moments of their whole hospitalization was when they finally had a passing ear valve, or finally had a way to communicate. SLPs are the experts. They are part of the delirium SWAT team. Bring them in before you run to sedation. Let's avoid the torture of muzzling our patients with sedation or withholding tools for communication during the most vulnerable, stressful, terrifying, and pivotal time of their lives. I am grateful for clinicians and technology that have humanized my daughter's mortal experience. I love their ability to empower her to make her thoughts and needs matter and be known. As fellow human beings, our patients have a right to communicate. We need them to be a part of their survival. As we strive to humanize the ICU, let us bring in communication as an essential part of saving lives. To schedule a consultation and connect on social media, as well as find supportive resources, including case studies, ebook, episode transcripts, and citations to research, please visit the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.